Welcome to Associated, a podcast where we're making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois, and today I have the pleasure of co-hosting with Francesca. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Lois. It is pretty, pretty okay day here in Berlin, which is always nice, but I'm off on holiday next week. Very excited. Are you? Yeah. Where are you going? So I'm going to Barcelona for a bit and then to London. So I'm going to make sure I can give you a call because we have not seen each other in a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. That's very exciting. Okay. Well, we'll schedule that offline. Let's move on because we're also joined today by an incredible guest. We're very, very lucky to have Susan Lynn, who is a partner at Felix Capital with us today. Hi, Lois and Francesca. Really nice to chat with you both today and I'm great to meet virtually Lois and see you again, Francesca. Yes. And also, I want to ask, how does the new partner title sound? Because it's a relatively uh, new announcement, right? Yes, yes, exactly. We just announced uh, last week, actually. It's been really exciting. But I've joined the team sort of three years ago now. Um, and it's, you know, I think we are probably similar to other funds, you know, we're, we're quite a small lead. And the mission from day one has always been about empowering everyone in the team to fully feel like they're their owners and that they can make decisions and, and being able to be their best selves. And so it's it's been really great to sort of see how that journey has come so far and, and be you know officially part of the partnership going forward. Yeah, that's amazing. And so what is the structure? Getting straight into to Felix to start <laughs> off with. What is the structure of the team? <laughs> so we so there's actually so at the moment there is five of us full time on the investment team. And we're actually quite a flat hierarchy. So all of us and our investors, we we all sort of do the full, you know, value chain of activities from you know, sourcing and meeting with companies, tracking them. Then, you know, when we're excited about a company or a space, sort of deep diving into it, doing diligence, um, trying to invest. And then also on the portfolio management side, trying to, to hopefully add value to our companies as they grow and scale. And the you know the fund was was started about seven and a half years ago now by Frederick and, and Antoine, my two colleagues and fellow partners. And and you know they've deliberately been we've thoughtful in terms of the the team building, and we wanted to keep you know Felix more of a boutique feel. So we haven't expanded it hugely, but you know, we we want to definitely sort of start growing the platform more. And we'll we'll talk about hiring later, but that's definitely a topic on our minds. But in addition to sort of the, the full-time team, we also have actually a network of now, I think, 12 or 13 venture advisors who are actually many of them really great former founders or operators or even current founders. And they also work with both us quite closely and with our portfolio companies. Mm. And I'm just interested in that comment on flat hierarchies I feel like you don't hear that as much in the venture industry as in others you do tend to get hierarchy with defined roles and responsibilities what do you have a view on on that and how that makes Felix different yeah it's a really good question you're right in that you know there's probably two different models in the industry, if I also include our American peers as well, there's definitely a group of larger scale funds, you know, that have you know bigger teams and where there's probably quite a bit more structure. Um, you generally have the partners who oftentimes were actually also the founders of the team. And then, you know, you have sort of you know, varying levels from analyst to associate, VP, principal, et cetera. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have funds which are probably smaller, both in terms of fund size, but also in terms of um, you know, maybe more focused from a portfolio perspective where it's sort of a smaller group of investors or partners working together, the USVs of the world. And I think, you know, it, if you have, let's say, 
these days, a two or three or plus billion dollar fund, I think it's really difficult to do that with just a small handful of people. And you probably want to just start institutionalizing more and having that very structured internal team processes. And also, you know, having sort of a clearer progression trajectory for people to, to ramp up. But I think, you know, the beauty of having a smaller team is they work very collaboratively together. If there's no traditional deal attribution, the way that some of the larger funds will do it, where, you know, one partner will say, these are these are the deals I brought in, therefore I should be rewarded for X, Y, and Z. And, and that can sort of lead to quite complicated dynamics. Whereas for, for us, you know, being a small team, we actually all sit around the table and talk about things together and often also work on things together in various different combinations. So, uh, you know, it could be a duo of me and, and Frederick or myself and a, another colleague called Angela or, or myself and JP, uh, another colleague. And, and we all sort of bring different strengths and, and perspectives. Mm, yeah, no, I totally understand that. And the reason I ask is because quite a lot of our listenership is people who are either looking to get into venture or yeah. perhaps just about starting their career in venture or thinking about doing that and I kind of imagine that entering a team like Felix versus one of those larger institutional players that you talk about where it is more hierarchical and defined mm. is quite a different experience and yes. in my view the the former is actually um a much rarer experience to get and so I would imagine that we hear less from people who can talk to you know what happens when you join a fund where it is much more collaborative and deals aren't necessarily owned by certain partners yeah yeah no that's actually that's true and and that's actually something that I talk actually quite a bit with some of our founders who are you know hiring at the senior level as well which is you know finding the right person for that particular environment and culture and recognizing that even someone with a fantastic you know resume or, or background experience might not be the right fit for that particular environment and so you know for us for example it, you do need to be sort of more of a self-starter and more entrepreneurial if you're waiting for people to not waiting for people to give you direction but if, if you thrive under sort of more hands-on coaching and feedback and, and direction, then you may want to be in a place which has a bit more structure. Um, earlier in my career, I started at a, a management consulting company called Bain and Company, which, you know, in, in my view, probably has one of the best coaching and, and leadership development programs out there. Some people love that and, and others will find that a bit stifling. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And actually, perhaps there isn't a straightforward answer to this one, but Felix, from my understanding, is one of the rarer European funds that lean quite heavily in their portfolio on the consumer-facing front, mm -hmm. which I love because you have <laughs> super cool companies on your portfolio. But does this small, flat hierarchical team, the decision of, of that structure, is, is it related to the investment thesis and does it work, say, better to, to source these Mm. focused businesses or or is it sort of separate but work well uh, parallel to each other like I'm, I'm curious to, to know yeah. are those two things related and, and the decision of the makeup fund related to the thesis of what to invest in that's a really good question. I think they were made in parallel, but I think there there is a link to them, and I'll sort of try try to I'll try my best to explain it. But um, I think you know, so so when we started, and you're, and you're right, Francesca, we, we we like to think that we have a slightly differentiated perspective on the market. And I think you know a lot of this back 
to when Frederick and Antoine were starting Felix, you know, about eight years ago. At the time, particularly, you know, the European venture ecosystem wasn't quite quite as hot as it today. And you you obviously had the big sort of brand name funds that you have today as well, who were doing really well. But a lot of the the big funds were were generalists, so you know, investing across all sectors. And I would say, you know, at the time in Europe, there was probably a strong bias towards B two B software and things that were seen as as more differentiated or defensible technology wise, and a bit, a bit of a bias against consumer because. In the sense of you know for a new brand or or a new consumer proposition, well that that can't be sort of long term defensible, right? And I guess you know we came in with with a fairly contrarian view, which is as actually that if you look at the, the world's most valuable companies today, you know so much of their their value is really locked up from from Apple to Tesla to others. So much of that value is up in, in brand and in customer love and the community that they're they're building around that product or service. And that was first of all something really exciting, but also because of the huge shift in consumer behavior and especially the transformation that was happening sort of on, on the digital lifestyle side, you know, whether that was how people were buying things, what they were buying, how they were eating, how they were getting around. We just saw this, this huge opportunity for the next generation of, you know, consumer facing brands or platforms that would really help to sort of shift, you know, consumers into this, this digital era, if, if we will. That's, that was sort of the thesis. And then I think from a culture perspective, all of us in the team have worked in pretty different organizations before. And so we've seen, you know, what's both what's worked well and what hasn't worked well. And, and I, I think that in this industry, we're all really lucky to be in a place where we can work with the best founders and, and look at really exciting ideas. But I think, you know, you'll find places which are sort of pretty sharp, sharp elbowed and competitive, sometimes not, not in a bad way, because you need to be competitive to, you know, to, to win the right to, to invest in the best founders. But I, I think particularly Frederick and Antoine sort of seen some of the challenges with that and said, actually, we, we want to do things a bit differently at Felix. It was sort of two separate decisions, but I think if we were a broader generalist fund, it would be really hard to not be tempted over time to do things sort of the the more traditional way, if you will. Um, But because we, we focus a lot on very specific themes and spaces, we can sort of say, depending on who's interested in what, you know, each of us take on different areas to look at and, and are therefore sort of enabled uh, or empowered to be experts in those specific areas and source and, and, and look at investments in each one. Yes, definitely. And you mentioned earlier there that your team have come from all different walks of life and know what works for them. So I'd love to sort of dive a little deeper into your background and, and how you ended up at Felix. Yeah, very happy to. Um, it's funny because I was uh, just chatting with my parents about this fairly recently. And it's funny how things come full circle because I think uh, it actually is a large part and due to due to them, which I guess, you know, all of us are shaped by our families in different ways. But just by way of background, so originally Chinese Australian, so grew up mostly in Australia till age nine. And then my parents actually, they originally left China in the, in the 80s to do graduate school in Australia and then decided to actually move to Hong Kong in the 90s to start a company. And it was a, a software company in the first, in the original dot-com boom. And, and they started that in a very uh, sort of bootstrap way in our own, in our tiny living room in Hong Kong with their co-founders. I was about nine or 10 then, and they never hired babysitter. So I had to sort of sit in the background of all their work meetings. I met their original angel and then, you know, series A investors. And, you know, we then spent a couple of years in, in Shenzhen, which is um, a, a city in China right across from, from Hong Kong. Kong, which in the in the late 90s was originally a very small you know fishing village almost and you know in the span of a few years boomed into this crazy metropolis so I guess I sort of witnessed both and you know firsthand I guess both the, the entrepreneurial journey that they took but but also very much the, the just the huge transformation that technology
technology had, and particularly in a place like China, where in many ways tech sort of leapfrogged um, the West. And, and you know, suddenly you went from you know this world where my grandparents' old house didn't even have running electricity to you know in the span of 10 years, 20 years, they were everyone was on WeChat and everything was being conducted completely on their smartphones. And it's yeah, that's that's I think sort of what what ignited the original interest. And then. Uh, long story, but I, I then went to the <laughs> went to the U.S. for uh, college. I went on the on the East Coast, and then following that, actually, I ended up moving to San Francisco in 2009. Started my career at Bain and Company, but did a lot of tech work out there for all the large you know tech companies, but also for a lot of traditional companies that were moving and starting to digitally transform themselves. And Bain was sort of advising them on that. And, you know, had friends who were starting startups or joining startups and just felt, you know, that whole ecosystem was was really exciting. And, you know, I toyed around with with starting my own company, didn't really get anywhere, but then joined. I was lucky enough to join two different startups there as well. And also I I went to Stanford for business school. But I guess, you know, having gone through those different routes that have realized, actually, I think for me personally, what... I got most excited about and what I enjoyed the most was rather being an operator, it was more being a being a cheerleader, uh, as I call it, to founders. And so switch over to the investing side about five years ago now. Cool. So you started investing five years ago now. Did that start off in the States or or how did you end up going across the pond? To be yeah. Here? So I, <laughs> it's funny. So yeah, I was, I was joking to someone that, oh, you know, it's a gr- great weather, the low cost of living that brought me to London from, yeah. from California. Um, <laughs> no, I moved over actually, actually for love. My husband who I, who I met uh, in California, he's German, but had lived in London for a long time before. Right. And, um, didn't get the U.S. visa actually after business school, so we we didn't really want to do um, European U.S. long distance, and so we both decided to move over to London together. I, I first started doing investing at, at a much later stage fund called HG Capital, which is sort of has both a private equity and a growth equity side, focused on software, uh, mostly B two B software actually. And as a fund, you know, they've done really well and learned a lot there, particularly sort of the, that investor mindset. But I think, you know, both the stage and the sectors that they focused on, I, I soon realized were not sort of long-term where I wanted to be. Yeah, about three plus years ago now, I started deliberately starting to looking for both earlier stage funds and ones that were sort of, you know, in thematic areas I was really interested in and was lucky enough to connect with the Felix team. Yeah, and joined. Amazing. And so you moved for love for one man, but now there are two men in your life. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yes, there are. There's a new guy in my life. Yeah. So I had a, I had a baby boy called Theodore last January, actually, right, right before COVID started. So it's definitely an interesting time to have a baby, but also pretty incredible in, in, in many ways. Wow, that is that's such wonderful news. And thank you. I'm really curious to know, like, obviously that was probably quite a big decision on your part to move from the US to to the UK and then you know have two job moves in the meantime. And then um, starting at Felix, a small team where you have a lot of responsibility to to be someone that's driving the fun forward, like as Lois was mentioning, almost when you have quite a hierarchical structure, maybe if you take one person out of the equation, it's Mm. it's not as impactful as the fact that there's five of you and you're all responsible for for finding the best deals on the market. So I'm, I'm just super curious to know, like when you think, okay, this is a good time to to set myself up to starting a family. I'd, I'd love to know a bit more about that. 
I know. I'd, I'd, I'd love to tell you that it was. It was <laughs> oh no, there's no secret sauce. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel, I feel like this is this is gonna sound like a cliche, but there, yeah, there really, there really is no good time. I mean, in in our case, I think <laughs> no good time because oftentimes, especially in 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 the you know the world we live in now, where it's it's oftentimes two busy working parents, potential parents, but also that you know there's um, I think the it's also very hard to time when exactly you might become pregnant and, and give birth. We've had friends, some of them, it's, it's, been, it's been so fast, they weren't even expecting it. And others, you know, it, it's taken sort of, it's been a multi-year journey. It's very difficult to know, I guess, be ahead of time, sort of which, which camp you might fall into. I think from outside, it was a little bit dictated by biology in the sense that I, I'm 35 this year. And so if we, if we were going down the path of having a child to, to have that, you know, before I hit my late 30s. And I guess we had sort of said, actually, let's start trying and, and see what happens. And, and then you know, we were lucky to have that happen pretty quickly. Um, so it was probably sooner than we expected, but you know, a, a good problem to have. And then, yeah, I, I think I, w- I was definitely a bit worried about how, how that would play out work-wise, but um, you're lucky to be in, in a really supportive team where, where everyone responded really positively and, and sort of said like, we don't have a dirty leave policy because you're the first person this has happened to, but look, let's, let's make it work. And they really did. Amazing. Thank you for being so honest about sharing that because I feel like it's something that a lot of people, well, clearly a lot of people go through, but it's not necessarily something that you hear a lot about. And so I was just curious to find out, like, I'm sure that Felix implemented a great maternity policy for you, but like personally, how did you find that journey of kind of ducking out of work for a while when you kind of are still relatively early in the Mm. investing part of your career? So how did you find like taking a step back and then coming back in? Yeah, it's it's a really good question because I think there's, you know, we uh, unfortunately there there's not, you know, I, hopefully I think there will be a growing a number of working mothers and, and and certainly working parents in our ecosystem, but it's not 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 the norm per se. So it's been hard to find what what the best model is. And I again I don't think there's probably the right answer to this, but um I chatted with different people, um and you know was lucky to to talk to a, a few others who have been through this um, before. And I think there was a camp in the U.S. of like I'm just going to take the the least amount of time off and and sort of stay plugged and and sort of you know work really really hard and try to you know attend all the board meetings and and not really sort of take much time to myself and you know there was also on the other side of the spectrum there's only people who took six months or or nine months or a year even a year up to say you know this is a really important time for me and and I need to get it right you know I need to sort of focus on my family I sort of ended up taking a bit of a hybrid ap- approach. It took about uh, four and a bit months off. Um, and I sort of, during that period, I let all my portfolio companies know ahead of time and then said, look, I, I will try to dial into some some of the board meetings um, just to stay somewhat plugged in, but won't sort of be be doing any sort of active work. And so it won't be sort of necessarily an active participant, but much more on, on listening mode just to sort of get a sense for what was going on. Probably the fifth month was basically a ramp up month. So I started with you know doing a day or two in the first week and then sort of ramped up to full time um, afterwards. And somehow also was was lucky in, in the COVID sense of like everyone was working from home, everyone was working remotely. So suddenly it didn't matter that I had to get into the office or go travel to meet a company. 
Yeah, definitely. And actually, my sister had a lockdown baby as well. (laughs) And I think she was really nervous about going back to work full time and heading into the office. And so the the silver lining of COVID is the fact that now that is definitely not not the case and it's totally fine to work from home. And I have like this wonderful image you were saying earlier about how you're in your parents' living room while your parents were working away and meeting investors. But it's now like proper full circle and your son is probably by osmosis like going to be talking deal deal talk in no time. (laughs) First words might be series A, you never know. (laughs) You're absolutely right. I hadn't hadn't even thought about it that way, but no, it's it's really come full circle now. (laughs) It really, really has. And actually, I'm, I'm conscious that we have that our, our listeners know sort of what your, your focus areas are at Felix. And you mentioned, you know, on the board of a few portfolio companies, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what they're up to and, and what they're doing and, and maybe a, a quick story about uh, how, how you found one. Yeah, absolutely. So, so at Felix, we're, we're very thematically driven. And the sort of overarching theme, I guess, is that we, we see this huge shift in consumer behavior towards a more digital lifestyle, which, which is impacting you know, the way that we discover products, how we connect socially, how we eat or get around, but also increasingly things around, you know, how do we work? How do we keep healthy? And uh, in addition to the consumer side, I um, should not neglect because I think this part we probably undersell sometimes, but we also have a, a really exciting um, B2B portfolio, a B2B SaaS portfolio, which is very much focused on what we call enablement tools. So all of the software tools that help brands or retailers or other companies better reach the end consumer and provide a better experience. So you can think of it as, you know, it could be anything from a marketplace software, which we have one in portfolio called Miracle, uh, which is now actually just recently announced a, a really exciting new round to a company called Averity, which is uh, doing a marketing automation platform. So enables, uh, you know, companies to see all of their marketing data and ROI on, on one platform and it, it integrates and harmonizes all of it. And then we also were now increasingly looking at, at tools that are, that may be used in the workplace, but have very much a consumer DNA, you know, being easy to use and allow allowing allowing non-experts to do what previously was more of an expert task. So, you know, one example of that is, I don't know if you guys have been following Canva, but I'm, I'm proud as an Australian that it's uh, it's really now one of one of the most scaled sort of startups in, in Australia. But yet that is a really exciting example of something that's democratized, you know, the, the whole area around um, visual design, which previously you, you had to really be a designer who, who was well-versed in Adobe to enable to do. So, so that's the broad trend. And within that, there's different sectors that we sort of have each been spending different time on. And I would say every year it also changes depending on sort of what we're interested in, but also, you know, where we see more our market opportunity. So in the last two years, I've been spending quite a bit of my time on two of the, the newer to Felix areas. One is in consumer financial services. So all the, the tools and apps that are helping, we think of a financial wellness as being a really important pillar in addition to physical and mental wellness. And so all the tools that are helping people better save, better invest, better manage their, their finances. And, you know, one example, of that is a company in Paris we invested in and at the end of last year called LeoCare, which is a digital mobile insurer. Um, so it helps you, you know, the overall missions to help you better protect all of your most important things, most important valuables from your car to your home, to your bike, to your gadgets, but and does that in, in a much more sort of consumer friendly way. And then the other area I've been spending quite a bit of time uh, more recently is in digital health. I've always been a bit big believer in, in the importance of, of you know, holistic wellness and we've done, done 
sort of fitness investments in the past, including you know Peloton, for example. But um, I think you know now also starting to to get really excited about the the scalability of digital health solutions and how now you know there's actually more clinical studies that are that are proving that they're just as effective, if not even more effective, than some of the in-person traditional treatment options. Yeah, su- super, super interesting. And just because I want to take advantage of the fact that there's not a huge number of consumer-centric focused funds, what sort of things do you prioritize perhaps when, when you're looking at an investment? Um, for example, with the French fintech company you were discussing earlier, like what what sells it? And is it, is it a bit differentiated, the priorities that you have on looking at a consumer company versus a B2B or, or is it generally pretty similar across both categories? In terms of, sort of the, the attributes we look for. Exactly. And what, yeah. No, it's a really good question. I mean, I think for, for us, obviously, one big pillar is always going to be the founders. I mean, we're, we're investing out of our third fund that we started last year. Most of that is, is focused on the early stage, which although for us, you know, we, we're quite flexible there. We do a lot of Series A's. We've done seed investments. We've done Series B investments. We separately have a, have a later stage vehicle that also doubles down on both our own portfolio companies, but also looks at, you know, breakout companies in, in spaces that we focus on. But I think, you know, for, for both of the consumer and the B2B side, you know, the, uh, I think the, the thing that we, we look for most is be, besides obviously, you know, great founders to work with is, is what we call customer love. And that can, you know, that can take slightly different forms, but, you know, on the consumer side, you know, I think there was probably more five plus years ago now, but, you know, there was this big trend at the time for a lot of, you know, D2C startups in all different types of spaces. And we've, we've been pitched many of them and a lot of them, it, it felt a bit sort of like you're just putting a, a nice packaging or a nice brand on something that wasn't, you know, wasn't actually that different. And, and a lot of it were scaling through paid performance marketing, um, which obviously is a very important channel and a you know, great channel to crack. But I think for, for us, you know, we, we really love seeing sort of the, these signs of, of customer love and, and, and knowing that, that the founder or the, the product has found an audience that we call, think of as, as a community, really. And so that, you know, that can be looking at signs of online social engagement, you know, on Instagram, TikTok, other channels. It can be looking at the number of sales generated organically, looking at repeat, looking at retention, looking at sort of the amount of, you know, referrals um, and all of that good stuff to basically, you know, try to get a sense for, are they doing something that's that's different, that's, that's really speaking to the end user. And so, you know, I'll give one example for a company that we invested in the beginning of the year. It's a company in Germany called Everdrop. And what they're building is a sustainable household products company. Well, ultimately, what they want to become is a sustainable PNG or, or Unilever, but they're starting with household products. And you know, the, the founders have sort of that rare combination of being really sort of authentically mission-driven. So they they think about the sustainability through everything from the, the specific product formulation. So they started off with, with cleaning sprays. They've launched laundry and detergent dish soaps, etc. But, you know, everything from the specific chemicals going in, making sure that they are clean and, and sort of, you know, fully verified from the supply chain perspective to the packaging, to how it's being shipped, to how they're running their internal organization, but also still being very commercially focused and, and hugely ambitious. And so they were uh, started in a very sort of lean, bootstrap way and, and basically gotten to over seven digits of, of you know, run rate revenue um, in the first seven, eight months, almost completely organically, just because people People love the product so much. You know, had a huge amount of following on on Instagram, and and so you know, we even though we've seen a lot of clean X brands, I think that one really stood out as being something quite different. 
Amazing. And I was just wondering, as you were talking about customer love as a metric, I was thinking about the other metrics that investors use and how different funds have things that they say are unique to them and whether they actually are unique or not is very debatable. <laughs> exactly. It's maybe up for debate. But um, I guess something that you can always rely on is that investors have certain things that they gravitate towards that just feel important to them. And I just wondered from your perspective, is there something that you personally tend to gravitate towards and ask lots of questions about? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's a few things. So the customer love is, is definitely one that's really important. I would say everyone in the Felix team is really quite focused on that. I mean, I think the other thing, which again, we might be a bit contrarian compared to some of our peers is, is we do want to see a business model that works. <laughs> We've seen a lot of startups have that have thrown a lot of money in various areas, which some of them are still gross margin negative and where we don't see, see a path to that company ever becoming, you know, potentially profitable, which could still be a great investment from VC perspective, because if you, if you know, if you invest early enough, certainly the company can valuation wise reach pretty astronomical heights these days without sort of demonstrating anything close to a sustainable business model. But I think for us and for me personally, I find that difficult to really have conviction in because I think ultimately if, if your product really is valuable and there's a use case for it, you know, obviously there are sectors that are, that are very much exceptions to this and there are areas that should be sort of nonprofit, but ultimately, you know, there, if it's a valuable product or, or service that, you know, hopefully over time, there would be some ways to, to, to turn it into a, a sustainable business model and not sort of have to, to rely on growth purely by like deeply discounting, you know, 80% of, of it. I think the other thing is you know, on the founder side, I think a lot of funds probably talk about founder product fit, but trying to understand, you know, what is really driving the person to create what they're creating. There are founders in our portfolio who have bootstrapped for decades even before they raise any outside funding and where, you know, really started from a, a very authentic, passionate place. And that's not obviously all founders. There are some great founders, which, you know, they, they know what they want to do and know they need to raise external funding very early on. But I think we, we do want to understand that the motivation of, of why they're uh, building what they're building, because there are so much doubts, even in the best journeys, you know, even in the amazing companies, which have exceptional growth and, and are doing really well, there'll be moments of doubt and challenges. And so I think if there isn't sort of some deeper seated reason why you're doing what you're doing, it, it's really hard to continue in those times. And so that's, yeah, that's something I, I try to understand better. And I guess related to that also, I understand a bit more about this personal motivation behind that. I think I, I was reading recently that someone else had coined this term about basically sort of thinking about the, not sort of necessarily where the person is now, but how far they've come, what their journey has been. And I, you know, I think that that's sort of showing the resiliency and the grit over different parts of, could be childhood, could be, you know, early adulthood, whatever it is. But I think it's healthy to have had some setbacks and been able to go from there. As I was mentioning earlier, I had a bit of a non-conventional childhood. I went to 10 different schools growing up because my parents were moving a lot and obviously it had its challenges, but I think, you know, made me hopefully, uh, I think a, a better person from that as well. Certainly learned a lot. So... No, yeah. yeah, it's cool that you that you bring it back to yourself because I was just thinking as you were talking <laughs> that some of those principles could be applied to equally hiring to build the team of investors just mm. as much as it could be applied to assessing whether a founder and a deal is the right fit for you. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of hiring, actually, wondering if that's on the cards for the Felix team. Are you expanding at the moment? Yes. So that's a really good question. So as we mentioned earlier, we're, we've been a pretty small lean team so far. And one of the things we, we did, you know, in, in the summer was actually have a bit of a team 
not quite an offsite because we couldn't really go anywhere, but sort of an onsite session to brainstorm as a group sort of what, what the future of Felix might look like. And I think, you know, one of the things that came out of that was some really important parts of us that we don't want to change, you know, for example, that very collaborative DNA. We, we see, you know, we, we're also hugely ambitious and, and want to continue growing the, the platform. And that means um, we, we, we need to also grow, grow the people part of that. So yes, we're starting to think about sort of hiring. Don't quite yet know how many people and specific background or profile we're looking for. But I think that's very much in the coming month or so, we should have a much better idea of that. And so watch the space. I will, I will definitely share that and would love to obviously hear, yeah, hear from anyone who's, who's interested in what we're doing. Super exciting. <laughs> Super exciting. Um, and, and great to know that you're sort of open to, to people reaching out to you and you gave some, some top tips there of like, how you're evaluating founders and as well as very kind of hinted, you know, could be applied to a potential. Uh, <laughs> yes. That was a very, that was a, that was a very astute pickup at Lois. Hint, hint, people, hint, hint. <laughs> but, but talking about outreaches, we'd be curious to know who else from the listenership we have here at Associated would you like to reach out to you and how would it be best for them to do so? Yes. So we'd definitely love to hear from founders, you know, particularly founders building things that are in the, the sort of themes that we're all excited about here at Felix. But also, you know, even if you're not, but you think you could be good to chat with potentially partnerships with our portfolio companies or any other topic, very happy to chat and, and get to know people. I, I would say probably the email backlog is probably different between each of our colleagues, but you know, we we all do get a, a number of called inbound emails. And I think all of us try to generally make a point of, of always responding to them. I send a large number of cold outbound emails to founders. So I know exactly what it's like to be on the receiving side if you're not if you're taking the time to even just say, hey, I'm we're not interested. Like um, you know, <laughs> we don't want to talk. So I, th- I think you know we, we try to at least give some sort of response. And I can be easily reached uh, Susan at Felixcap.com. My email uh, also try to be fairly active on LinkedIn. So, you know, if there's something that you want to share there, please feel free to reach out as well. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for your time. It's great to hear your story from, gosh, from your parents' bedroom all the way up (laughs) to where you are now. And so impressive and so inspiring that you also sought to partner positions and done so much in in between and and the amazing portfolio companies that you're supporting. All in all, just a brilliant episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you both so much for having me. It's uh, it's been really really fun and and you know really excited to be chatting again and then having you both as well. You know in in the ecosystem, I think it's it's such a vibrant space now and and yeah, excited to do more things together. And of course, thank you to our lovely listeners tuning in. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at associated underscore pod. And please do feel free to shoot us an email on associatedpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you know anyone, please do share the episode with your friends, families, uh, colleagues, if you feel like (laughs) it's helpful. And yes, thanks again. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.